got it. You guys are getting good at that. I appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, just something that I think affects every single one of us, and that's that's settling differences. But first, I want to welcome all of our visitors uh, and any anybody who's been uh, out but is coming back. We certainly appreciate you being here. Uh, and take a chance to get to know every single person here. And if you see a visitor, shake their hand and introduce yourself to them uh, and learn their name at least, but they probably won't remember all of ours, but that's okay. Uh, All right, we're going to talk today about resolving differences, settling differences. In every aspect of our life, uh, there are going to be differences, right? And sometimes those can be good things that help us work out different situations, but they can also lead to disagreements, arguments, and even conflict. Uh, these differences often manifest themselves in our marriages, our families, and even in our church families. Sometimes we have disagreements. Sometimes we have conflicts. Sometimes we have differences of opinion. Uh, and I don't think any of us is immune to that type of conflict, right? Paul, the great missionary, and Barnabas, the great encourager, were not immune to it. If they were not immune to it, then certainly we were not. And I think it's beneficial for us to look at this conflict that happened between Barnabas and Paul as we get started at the beginning of this discussion to look at the conflict and realize that the relationship between these two men was a a very strong friendship relationship. In fact, I think Paul even looked to Barnabas as a a mentor, uh, certainly a friend. And you see that develop over the course of their relationship. After Paul's conversion to Christ, of course, he had been a persecutor of the church. And and the apostles and the other followers of Christ did not accept Paul. They were scared of him. But we see in Acts 9 and verse 26, Barnabas stands for Paul. He's taken the time to get to know him. He understands what's going on with Paul, and he stands up for him. He says, no, this man is sincere. He is a true convert to Christ, and we should accept him into our fellowship. Then Barnabas goes to work in Antioch, and he's having great success at the church in Antioch. The church is growing, and the work is more than he can handle. So what does he do? He goes and finds Paul. Paul has gone on back home to Tarsus, and he's evangelizing and working in the churches there in Tarsus. Barnabas goes, gets him, brings him back, and works with him in Antioch for an entire year. They have so much success that that's the first place that we are called Christians was in Antioch. That's the kind of success. There's so many of them, and they're shining their light so brightly in that area that other people start calling them Christians. Those are those followers of Christ, right? That's the kind of relationship that Barnabas and Paul had. Then they decide, we are going to go off on a missionary journey. We are going to go together. We're going to take John Mark as our helper. And together, they faced difficulties and problems together. They become almost a band of brothers, right? We we know that band of brothers comment referring to those who served together in World War II. This idea that they came 
from all different walks of life, but they go through difficult times together. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark go through these difficult times, so much so that John Mark, for some reason, turns back and goes home. But Barnabas and Paul continue on, and without their helper, it's even more difficult. And they must have formed a really tight bond together. They come back, this band of brothers, and they decide after a while they're going to go on a second missionary journey. And it's at that point that Barnabas wants to give John Mark, who's his relative, another chance. And Paul doesn't, right? This leads to that disagreement. In fact, Acts 15 and verse 39 calls it a sharp contention. That's a nice way of saying that they had words, right? They're arguing with each other. They got a little bit loud with one another. They had a difference of opinion. They had a disagreement. So what happens? Paul takes Silas, and he goes on a missionary journey. Barnabas takes John and goes to Cyprus, his homeland, and he goes on a missionary journey to Cyprus. So there's some things I want us to note about this dispute, this difference of opinion. And the first one of those things is that it was not a doctrinal issue. It was over whether or not to take John Mark with them on the missionary journey. That's the first thing I want us to think about. It's a personal dispute based on a judgment call. It's not about whether we go to heaven or hell. It's not about how we worship God according to the New Testament. It's about whether we take John Mark with us on this trip. So it was not a doctrinal issue. It was an issue that either one of them could have been right or partially right on. The second thing I want us to note is that they did not let this disagreement hurt the work. In fact, the work is multiplied because of it. It doesn't hinder the work. It multiplies the work. Now there are two missionary journeys. Now there are more people receiving the gospel. Now there are two helpers that are going to be trained and have mentors and do great work in the kingdom going forward. The third thing I want us to notice is that they did not badmouth each other. Now we see this in the writings of Paul. He talks a couple of times later, after this disagreement has happened, he talks about Barnabas. He talks about how he is worthy of support. We don't see anything from Barnabas talking about Paul, but we know from his attitude, he's known as the great encourager, we can assume that Barnabas was not going around bad-mouthing Paul. They had a disagreement. They decided to part ways but not hurt the work. And they did not bad-mouth or gossip about each other. Fourth, I want us to see that at some point there was forgiveness over this. Yes, they had this disagreement. Yes, they had this contention, but they didn't hold it against each other forever. And in fact, Paul didn't even hold it against John Mark forever. Later, he says, he's useful for me. He sees that John Mark has matured and grown, and he is able to forgive this wrong that's happened, or this disagreement that has happened. I think those are all 
lessons that we can learn. Sometimes people judge Paul a little bit harshly for this. They say he was too stubborn. Certainly Paul had had some bad things in his past, but people gave him a chance. Perhaps he should have given John Mark a chance. Uh, But he decides not to do that. Uh, And it seems to have worked because later Paul uh, is with John Mark in Colossians 4.10. And they command them to receive Barnabas if he comes. With all of that in mind, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And that's where I want to look at our main text for the day. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 to start out. It says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. This idea of don't take a brother to court, right? Let's examine this concept, this idea. Uh, Now, in the next verse, in verse 7, he actually makes it clear that we should take the wrong rather than uh, going to court against our brethren and making the church look bad to the world. These, these people that claim to be like Christ, they can't even get along amongst themselves, right? That's the impression he's saying. Now, I want to say, from the start of this discussion, I do not believe this is saying that you never take a a brother or a sister to court, that you never bring somebody to law. I think there are many cases of endangerment and law-breaking that would not fall under this idea. Uh, For instance, if a man is sexually abusing a child, if there's domestic abuse, if there's child abuse, or some crime has been committed, and the brother has confessed to this, but he believes that I'm forgiven of that crime. I don't have to turn myself in or make any restitution or change in any way. Uh, that's not the case. You are not above the law. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for breaking the law. Uh, I think this is talking about when some kind of injustice has been done. And... That idea uh, of injustice, you're going to take that, that case, instead of going to the civil courts, you're going to go before the elders of the church, or you're going to choose someone that both of you or the rest of the members of the church decide as a wise person to mediate that dispute. And you're both going to accept whatever decision happens, even if you both have to compromise, even if you are wronged, and you believe you're right, you're going to take the wrong rather than making the church look bad. That's what I think that's talking about. In other words, we ought to be able to work together to settle any kind of disputes and any kind of problems we have with one another. 
But there's something true of us, and I think that it's because we're made in God's image. And God is just. We know that God is, is purely just. He's perfect, and He's fully just. He's fair. And this idea, when something unfair happens to us, our reaction to that, our gut reaction is, that's not fair, right? And we don't like it when things are unjust. When it's been done to me or to my people. And here's the problem with that. That is a maturity problem, really. I want to say this, and I, I mean it very deeply. If you are looking to cure injustice, any kind of injustice in this world, you are looking in the wrong place. This is not where we get justice. This is not. This world is not where things are going to be fair. That's a foreign concept to the world. Now, we have the justice system, and we try to be fair. People fight for their rights, and they should. We should try our best to be as fair as we can, but we need to understand that the world is not going to be fair. That's never going to happen. Now again, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for it. I'm just saying that that's the way it is. And that's the way it will always be. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, encourages us when he says in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The unjust, those who are unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. And then he goes on to list a whole bunch of different sins. He's trying to encourage us to recognize that the world is an evil place. And you you shouldn't expect to get true justice in this world. My favorite book outside of the Bible is a book that they made a movie of later called The Princess Bride. My family knows this. I talk about it all the time. I love The Princess Bride. I love the movie too, but I really love the book. And I'll tell you why. Because as a child, my mom read it to me. Uh, Now, she's not feeling well today, and she's not here. Uh, But she would be smiling and proud if she were sitting here, me talking about the Princess Bride. She read it to me as a small child, and I grew up with this book. And the reason I like it so much is it's a fairy tale, basically. But the theme of the book is that the good guy doesn't always win. That life's not fair. And sometimes the bad guy wins. Sometimes the bad thing happens. And that's tough. And that's a life lesson that all of us need. I believe that the whole world needs that lesson. They need to understand that life is just not fair. That's part of what makes heaven and God so attractive. Heaven is fair. God is fair, right? And when you're young or you're immature, what's the worst thing that can happen to you growing up is that your brother or your sister gets something and you don't get anything. Oh, that's unfair. Oh, man. Right? We don't like that. And we're going to yell about it. And I believe that that that's not fair. And when parents do a disservice to their children and teaching them, okay, I'm going to try to make every single thing fair. Okay, she got something, so you're going to get something of equal value. If you do that, raising your children, 
you're teaching them that it always has to work out equally. It doesn't. It's not going to. It's the idea of always getting a participation ribbon everywhere you go. You're not always going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes you're going to lose because somebody did something bad to you. And it's not fair. And that's what we have to learn to deal with. Now, that's the immaturity problem. Here's where it gets to a maturity problem. You ready for this? You don't really want it to be fair. You don't really want justice. Now, think about this. It's vitally important, I think, that every Christian realize that you don't want justice. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and read verse 9 and 10. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And what's it say in that next verse? And such were some of you. Some of the people he's talking to did all of those things, those horrible, sinful things that he just talked about, that he just mentioned. And what does it say in verse 11? Such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We don't want justice. We want to be justified. We want mercy. Why is that? I want you to think in your life about one sin that you've committed. The first sin that comes to mind. I want you to think about that. Some sin that you struggle with or have struggled with in the past, even if you beat it, even if you've defeated that, whatever it is. And I want you to take into account and think about this one sin because it's a repeating theme of Scripture and people have a misunderstanding of it. Whatever that one sin is, there's a scale of justice, right? And people have this in their mind that if I'm a good person and I do more good things than bad things, that tips the scale in my favor, I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. That's wrong. The truth is that once you have sinned, that goes all the way down, and you don't have anything, there's no amount of good, there's nothing you can put on the other side of that scale that's going to balance that and make it just. You have sinned. You have been separated from God, and you have no hope. None. Zero. Paul talks about it in Romans, right? And what does he say? But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Same thing as verse 11. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Without Jesus and without coming in contact with his blood, we have no hope. But we do have hope because of Christ. And that's what's wonderful and amazing about God is he provided a way 
for us to tip that scale in our favor through Jesus, right? Jesus talks about this same concept in the parable in Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 23, where the king forgives 10,000 talents of debt. Now, that doesn't really ring much to our ears. I mean, 10,000 seems like a big number, but what's a talent, right? Well, a talent is a 75-pound weight of silver, 75 pounds of silver. Now, a pound of, or an ounce of silver right now is about uh, 20, 23, $22.50, $23. That would make one pound of silver worth $352. That would make 75 pounds of silver, one talent, be worth $26,400. I did the math. I'm not doing it in my head. $26,400 for one talent. Jesus compares sin to 10 thousand talents, 10,000 75-pound weights. That's $264 million worth of silver. Now, if you're Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or, or Elon Musk or one of those guys, you might have $264 million lying around. But I, I would think that all of us in this room, that's a pretty big number. If somebody came to you and said, you've got $264 million worth of debt, how are you going to pay that off? All of us would say, I, I guess I'll get a mortgage and put it against my home. No. Nobody's going to give you a home worth $264 million and say you'll pay that off in 30 years, right? You have no hope of ever paying that off. You could live to be 200 years old. You're not going to make $264 million, right? Most people. That's the idea. That's the idea Jesus is impressing is that's the weight of sin, it's unmovable. It's unpayable. But Jesus paid the price. And the king wiped it away. He forgave that debt. It's a recurring theme in Scripture. In Ephesians 5, 25-27, Paul pleads with husbands, love your wife just like Christ loves the church. And he gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her by washing of water by the word. In Titus 3, 3 through 5, he says, It isn't by works of righteousness that ye have done that ye are saved, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now this takes place at baptism when we are, our sins are washed away. Acts twenty two sixteen. It's not the washing of the body. It's a washing of the conscience and making it clean. An answer to a good conscience, 1 Peter 3, 20, 21, it's baptism that now saves you. And when that happens, when we are washed, as it talks about in verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 6, we are sanctified and we are justified. Things become fair now. And God can accept us because we're in Christ. Without that, we have no hope, or no hope of ever making things fair. We don't want fairness. We don't want justice when it comes to us standing before God. We want mercy, and we want to be justified by Christ. I want you to think, you know, we use that word sanctified a lot, too, and I always like to define it, because I think we throw that word around a lot, and we don't always take into consideration the deep meaning of it. The, the articles in the temple were sanctified. They were purified and set aside to a purpose. 
It's, it's kind of like if you have fine china, right? And you're going to bring guests into your house where you get out the fine china and you use it for the guests. Normally, you just use paper plates so you don't have to wash dishes, right? Or maybe I'm just talking about my house. I don't know. Me, personally. Uh, but when guests come, you use the fine china. All right, it gets dirty. You wash it and you set it back aside for a purpose. So the next time guests come, you're going to use it again. But until then, it's clean and set aside for a purpose. That's what sanctified means. You've been cleaned and set aside for a purpose, for use by God. It's possible that you get dirty. It's possible that you sin again. But Christ's blood continually washes you and renews you. And you're still sanctified for that purpose as long as you continue to walk in the light. First Thessalonians 4, 3-8 through 8 tells us that for sanctification to remain in effect, we have to push away sexual immorality so we can remain a vessel in sanctification and honor. He goes on to say that this means one must not transgress against or defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. As we also previously told you and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to sanctification. He's called us to be washed and set aside for a purpose. Therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God. You know, in the Old Testament, the people cried out for a king. Right? They said, give us a king. And Samuel was sad about that. He says, they've rejected me. And what did God say? He said, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. They've rejected God. I'm up here preaching the truth from God's word today. If you reject it, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. You're not rejecting man, but God. When we put our ideas and what we want the Bible to say onto things, we're not rejecting man. We're embracing most of mankind. We're rejecting God. There are some other things I want us to think about in regards to this because I think it's really the heart of the matter when we talk about conflict resolution and settling differences. I first started in church work about almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago. And I understood as I was moving over from the secular world into working mostly with church people, I understood that the church people are not perfect, right? Elders are not perfect. Deacons are not perfect. Preachers are not perfect. Members are not perfect. We're all human. We all sin. And, and therefore, it would not be a perfect environment. But, and it's true. It's not a perfect environment, but it's a much better environment than what I was dealing with working in the secular world. What I was not prepared for, I think, as I came into church work and what took me a long time and struggle through was that when there's sin in the church, when elders, preachers, brothers and sisters let you down, it hurts a lot more than when someone in the world does it. It hurts a lot more. I think that's why 
Jesus goes after the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the holy people. He talks about them because what they were doing hurt so much more than what the common people were doing. These are people who are supposed to be religious leaders and living up to that standard, and they were making it harder on those around them. They were putting themselves above other people and thinking they're too good for these other people. That's why Jesus was hurt more by the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. That's why Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares. Look at Matthew 13 and verses 24 through 30. So there's another parable putting forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up, when everything started growing and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, dost thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, for years I read that, and I thought that's talking about the judgment, and when God will take the church, and he'll take the world. He's going to gather the world up and throw it into the fire, and the church is going to be saved. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the church. It's talking about the fact that there are tares, there are weeds, there are people in the church who work against the church. That's what it's talking about. And he says at the time of harvest, at judgment, I'm going to separate them. And I'm going to take the good for the harvest and the bad, I'm going to judge. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it fair. That's what he's saying. So when we talk about we don't want fair, we want mercy, we do. And when we see things, even in the church, that are not fair and not right, I don't know how God is going to resolve those things, but I trust that he is. He's going to be fair. Because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. When we seek to get vengeance on our own, we risk rooting up the good things too. And that's a hard thing for us to accept. It's a mature thing for us to accept. And when we talk about putting our faith in God, that's what it's really about. That's saying, you know what, I'm rather going to take the wrong and put my faith that God is going to make that right in the end. And I'm not going to risk rooting up good things. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I put my faith that God will make it right. Fear God and keep His commandments. There's fear in it, but there's also comfort that things are going to turn out right in the end. Pray for your enemies. Stephen did. Jesus did, as they were killing him. That's the spirit we need to have. But I'm going to put forth that it's not usually the case that if there is a disagreement, if there is a problem, that it's usually a one-sided thing. Usually, both sides are somewhat wrong. 
And so to deal with those conflicts, what we need to do, instead of doing hurtful things, instead of being passive-aggressive or mean or backbiting, instead, we need to do what's helpful, right? I can't control what someone else does, what someone, how someone else reacts. I can influence, but I can't control. And so we need to look inward and try to fix our role in the conflict. Even if I started off right, have I done anything now that's, that's made me in the wrong? Have I acted in some way? Have I escalated it instead of reducing it? Have I returned good for evil? as the Bible tells us to, or have I returned evil for evil and made the situation worse? The other thing we need to do is pray. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for the person. Pray for our enemy. Pray for wisdom. Pray for patience. You know, when I say pray for the person, I always find this story to be interesting. Uh, This is a true story. Uh, It doesn't mean pray for brother so-and-so to wake up and smell the coffee and get right. That's not what it means when it says pray for the the other person. I had a secretary once when I worked in in secular work. She was not a a Christian. Uh, She did not like me very much because I made her work pretty hard, and she was uh, kind of a lazy person, to be honest. Uh, She didn't care for me. One day, I came back from lunch, and she said, You know, I just want you to know that I pray for you every day. I was floored. I was shocked. Uh, this is a woman I knew she did not like me. Uh, and I said, well, I'm touched. I, I didn't know that. It surprises me. And she says, uh, yeah, I pray that you get hit by a train. <laughs> I don't know what you say to that exactly. I just kind of walked away. But that's not what it means when it says to pray for your enemies, right? Don't pray that your enemies wake up and smell the coffee. Don't pray that your enemies get hit by a train. Pray that you can work it out with them. Pray that they're going to open their eyes and and be able to resolve whatever conflict it is and pray for their soul, that their soul is not going to be lost. Be open to working it out with a person and be willing to go to the person and acknowledge your role in the conflict, acknowledge that you are willing to compromise or even lose in order to make this right so that your soul's are not threatened. Because you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. Be willing to take the hit. Right? Verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 6, is early fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take the wrong? Right? Be willing to take the hit, even if the other person doesn't reciprocate, even if they don't change. Do what's useful. All right. I'm going to to stop there and close with this invitation. If for whatever reason you are not currently justified, either you are not in Christ, you have not come in contact with Christ's blood through baptism, you have not repented and turned away from your sin, you're not walking in the light as He is in the light, you're not trying to be on the right path, but you want to. You want to be justified when the time comes. I know that when I face the Lord, and it's just me, that I want Jesus in my corner, on my side. I want Him as my defense attorney. 
Not because I'm not guilty, but because he's going to say, I've already paid the fine. He's one of mine. That's what I want. But if you do not have Christ, you're going to be guilty and there's not going to be anyone in your corner. You don't want to be in that situation. Every single one of us will want Christ then. You need to understand that and and want Him now. If you don't understand all that, we would be happy to study with you and help you come to an understanding of the truth and the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins so that we have hope of being justified in the day of judgment so that we can be with Him in heaven. If that's the case for you, please come forward, make it known as we stand and as we sing.